Welcome to New Freedom Church. Our mission is to be real people walking and experiencing real freedom. If you're new with us, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get new content immediately when it's released. And we want to thank those of you who have shared our videos because it helps us to reach even more people with the life-changing message that there is a Savior who loves you and wants real, genuine freedom for you. And if you haven't done so already, go to newfc.org. Go to the Connect tab and share with us how we can best connect with you and your family to serve your needs. Welcome to part one of a brand new series, five-part series on the book of James. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the New Testament book of James. It's actually more of a letter than it is a book called an epistle. And uh, my name is Joe. I serve as lead pastor here at New Freedom Church. If I haven't had the chance to make your acquaintance, I would love to do so. And if you're visiting us online, there's a way that you can connect right there digitally. Let us know that you're watching. We have a free gift for you if you haven't already stopped by the information desk to pick that up. But we're so glad that you're joining us today. Uh, the book of James is a, a, a book that I've been wanting to, to get to probably for two years now. It's kind of my custom to go between Old Testament books and New Testament books to give us a steady diet, I believe, of God's Word and kind of track through some things uh, that God would be leading our local church in, our local assembly, but also practical living for our everyday lives. Uh, this short little uh, letter was written by the brother of Jesus, the earthly brother of Jesus, whom uh, incidentally did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God while he was um, uh, walking on this earth and, and doing his earthly ministry. You know how sibling rivalries go. It's kind of hard to, to believe that your brother truly is perfect. I mean, his brother really was. But, but could you imagine uh, being James and coming up after Jesus in grade school? Like, you, that would be a tall order, wouldn't it? That'd be some tough shoes to fill. I mean, you, you would really have some high expectations. And when the teacher says, but James, you don't act like your brother. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. But uh, James only became a follower of Christ and a believer in Jesus as the Messiah after the resurrection. So we can see in this book a, a good mixture of logic and faith, a good mixture of faith and works. It, it is, uh, I think, a, a really good starting place for someone who maybe they're just not sure yet of the claims of Christianity. They're not really sure of the, the uh, veracity of the Word of God because James is not some mystic that just accepts everything at face value. He actually searches it out and he uses logic, a little bit of wit, a little bit of uh, quick humor, um, really some hard-hitting uh, facts and truths to get the message across and to point to the one who is the Savior of the world, Jesus the Christ. And so James brings a, a fresh breath of uh, wisdom to our daily lives. I want to uh, just do a little bit of a different uh, uh, format here on this because there are five chapters in James, and I would like to cover as many of the verses as we possibly can. I don't know if I can get to all the verses over these five weeks, but I, I do want to try to do them uh, one at a time. We'll unpack each little verse to kind of give us what the author was intending to say. So we're going to start in James chapter 1, verse 1, and get the introduction and then go on through, and today will be chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, read with me. It says, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a pretty big statement for his brother to declare him right at the beginning that he is the Lord, he is Jesus Christ. But the writing was to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and he offers greetings. A couple of things, first of all, to, to kind of notice here is that he identifies himself as the author of this book. So we, we don't have any question of who wrote this. James is, is identified here as the, the writer. 
But then he gives praise and gives, gives credence to the fact that Jesus is Lord, and he has become a bondservant of Jesus the Lord. Now, when we think of a servant, many times, especially first century where this was written, we think of a slave, and a slave or slavery is, is a uh, deplorable way to treat other human beings, and that, this is not the kind of uh, um, notion or connotation that James wants us to get. A bondservant is actually someone who willingly surrenders their right to another. A bondservant isn't a slave that's being forced by coercion to have to serve, but it's someone who willingly will give up their right and commit their lives to a cause. And so James, like you and I today, we have said yes to Jesus. If you've not said yes to Jesus, you have that opportunity every single day, but every single Sunday here at New Freedom, we give you that that opportunity to take a step across the line of faith and become a bondservant or a willing participant in the work of God in your life. And that's what he's saying is that I wasn't forced into this thing. Mom and dad didn't make me follow Jesus. Nobody told me that if you don't do this, you're not going to get the blessing. But I willingly have committed my life to Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And he's talking to the 12 tribes of Israel that have been scattered abroad. They have been scattered all throughout the world. And this scattering took place because of persecution in the early church. And so the, the Jews went all, all around and God's people uh, fanned out across the world. We don't see that this gathering came back until 1948, which is just within the last uh, 100 years that we've seen that a great regathering of God's people have come to the nation of Israel. A whole other topic, but with that is, is such wonderful fulfillment of this end-time gathering that we're seeing and prophecy being fulfilled all in our, our very day, things happening right now. But there is a parallel, I think, that James can draw to our lives here and now. He's writing to 12 tribes of Israel who've been scattered, but you and I, as believers in Jesus represent the people of God, those who have said yes to the Messiah, and we are scattered in very diverse ways. We are scattered all around the world. You, you will find Christian believers in China, in Africa, in Indonesia, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, and in uh, so many places of the world. You will find in every nation, tribe, and tongue, there is someone somewhere who has named the name of Jesus. And we are brothers and sisters with them according to the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ living in our hearts. Isn't that exciting? That we we may be a part of this local assembly, but we are also uh, brothers and sisters in the worldwide church that names the name of Jesus. And so we being scattered abroad, James' wisdom can be applied to our day right now because we are uh, given this great privilege of taking this message to the entire world starting with our world, starting right here and right now, the influence, our oikos, you hear me talk about our 8 to 15, our oikos, we have a a privilege to be able to represent Christ to our oikos. And so this relationship we have with God is built upon serving as a bondservant, coming to surrender ourselves to Jesus. Look at verses 2 through 4. This next section says, my brethren, talking to people who already know the Lord, my brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces. Everybody say, faith produces. Faith produces. The testing of your faith produces. What does it produce? Well, he tells us it produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
Nothing. Now, let's be real here. This is real people, real freedom. How many of you, when trials and testing and hard times come, you just say, oh, Skippy, that's wonderful. (laughs) That's what James says. Count it all joy when you enter into various or diverse or many trials. How many of us actually do that? I, I can't remember the last time that I had a trial hit my life, just show up unannounced, unwelcomed, unexpected, and I said, oh, Lord, thank you for trusting me with this trial. Now, that's the posture that we should have or the mature believer would have, but even the most mature believers that I know do not relish in the fact that there will be trials in their lives. We don't typically take this approach, but James, having had a perspective of Christian living, having had a perspective of watching Jesus grow up and and go to the cross and be be crucified and rose on the third day, and then he himself, James, going to be a leader in the early church, he knew a thing or two about trials. He knew a thing or two about testing. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to be in a foxhole, I don't want the first class private, the person who just entered, to be in that foxhole with me. I want somebody that's got some battle wounds. I want somebody that has some scars on their brow. I want somebody who's been down and dirty in the trench. And this is where Jesus gets with us in the middle of our mess. In all of our various trials, he said, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world and you are more than a conqueror through Jesus. Amen. But he said, knowing, here's what you know. I mean, are there some things that you just know because you know? Somebody said, how do you know you're saved? I said, I just know because I know because I know. It's down here in my knower. You know where your knower is? It's like, it's inside. He said, knowing this, the reason you rejoice is not because you relish trouble, not because you like pain. The reason that you rejoice is that you know that the testing of your faith produces. Somebody say, faith produces. Before you leave here today, I want you to remember faith produces. Faith has a product to it. Faith has a, an outcome on the other hand. Faith produces. It produces a whole lot of things, but he, he defines it as faith produces patience. Now, Lord, help all of you who have ever prayed, Lord, give me patience. You mature Christians laugh because you know, don't ever pray that prayer. <laughs> because just as soon as you pray for patience, you have scheduled yourself a trial. The only way to get faith to produce patience is to be tried, to be tested, to be proven. When you're proven, that means that you have to have an examination. This is the time of year where the first quarter of school has ended and students have come home with their report card. And some of them were really pleased with the outcome and others were not so happy. And so they say, yeah, but there's another quarter coming up next. Yes, that's true. And here's the good news about God is that if you didn't pass the test the first time, God has remedial courses. You can take the test again and you likely will. You will be tried. You will be tested. There will be things that you have to do over and over again. You, you fall down, you bump your head, you skin your knee, you get back up and you try it over again. And God's gracious like that. And God's merciful like that. But faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect work, the word perfect there doesn't mean uh, what we think of as perfect as, as that there's no blemishes. It, really, the word perfect here means fully developed. Get, get in mind what James is saying. 
when faith has had its fully developed maturity, it produces this patience and it lacks nothing. Lacking nothing means that uh, you have been through that and you have mastered that area. There are some things that used to really trip you up in trials, used to really test you, that you've pretty well mastered that or you've conquered that, and so you've graduated to the next level. And how many knows with every level, there's a brand new devil? With every past test, you go and you graduate to a whole new level of testing and trial. And that's just the Christian journey. That's just the Christian walk. That's common to life. If you're never being tested, you're never being tried, then you're probably not growing very much. They say that it is resistance that causes muscles to build. First, you tear them down by by exercise, but then you continue to exercise and give resistance to build them back up. And this is what God is doing in and through your life even right now today. God is giving you some opportunities. Everybody say opportunities. So you need to get a new vantage point. You need to look out and say, okay, this season in my life is tough. What I'm going through right now today is not necessarily desirable. But God has given me an opportunity to be more than a conqueror. God has given me an opportunity to overcome. It's kind of like veins of gold that people search for in mountains. Veins of gold are mineral deposits that are developed through hot fluids flowing through the earth's crust. Or diamonds, which are formed at very high temperatures and pressure being applied in the depths of the earth's surface. They don't start out looking like gold or looking like diamonds, but it looks like a whole other substance altogether. But when you bring it all to a fruition, when it has, it has been tested, when it has had pressure applied, then something beautiful results. And can I tell you that as your faith is tested, something beautiful is developing. People may not be able to see it yet on the outside, but God is doing a work on the inside. And if you will let patience have its perfect work, if you will let the Holy Spirit of God continue to work that thing through, to apply that pressure, though it doesn't feel good, to apply those hot chemicals to your life, though it's a purging process, God will bring you an exceeding weight of glory when he's ready. Not according to your schedule. Not according to my timetable. If it were up to my timetable, my testings would last about three minutes. I would pray today and I'd get the answer, I would say tomorrow, but I really want it today too, right? I want to get it immediate. We live in a microwave society. Everything can be done in two minutes. We can have the crime story solved in a 60-second show on television with commercials full and everything. We can find the the diagnosis to the problem in the medical journal. We We have this mindset that everything should be easy, that everything should come quickly. We rush, rush, rush. We have everything at our fingertips, more knowledge and more learning than we've ever had in the history of humankind, yet we are more uneducated, we are more divisive, we are more mean-spirited, we are more uh, separated than ever before in our history. Why? Because there is a perfect work that is happening, and we have to let God form us as Christ followers. Not being in the image of the world, but walking by the Spirit. Walking in faith and not by sight. James chapter 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, anybody want wisdom? I want more wisdom. I mean, I think I've made some wise choices in life, but all that I know is not all there is to know. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God 
who gives to all. How many does God give to? Those who are good? Those who attend church on Sunday, those who go to Sunday school or read their Bible every day? No, it says that if you ask for wisdom, this is a great equalizer. God gives to all, you know how he gives? Liberally. You know, God's a liberal when it comes to giving. He gives liberally. He gives in a big way to all who ask him, and he gives without reproach. That means he don't attach all these if you do and strings and all that kind of thing. God gives wisdom and it will be given when you ask. You say, but pastor, can the ungodly and unrighteous get wisdom? Well, yeah. Why do you think it is that the missionaries of this world are begging for money and the ungodly and unrighteous owning multi-billion dollar corporations hoarding their money? Well, it's not because God designed it that way. It's because someone has use their intellect, they've used their ability, they've used this, this whole testing concept, and they have gotten wisdom in a certain area. And you know, I believe that right now, there are designs yet to be developed. There are ideas yet to be hatched. There are businesses that God wants to birth in the earth right now. Somebody just receive that word. Somebody can just ask for wisdom. God, give it to me. Give me an idea. God, give me a breakthrough idea. God, give me an invention that has never been made. We think sometimes that, that all that has been reported is all that ever will be, all that has been made. We, we, we miss an opportunity when we sit back and we don't pursue what it is that God put in our hearts. Did I ever tell you that I invented the remote control? When I was a kid, we had a television that you'd have to walk up and you would push the button. There were, there were like 14 buttons on the side and you push the button. I remember as a kid, I would sit back and I'd say, boy, it'd be nice if I didn't have to get up off this couch and I could just, just control that. And that was an invention in my mind, but somebody else beat me to the patent. And there are so many things that are problems that you perceive as a difficulty, but God is birthing a problem in your heart because you are a problem solver. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to get active and cooperate and collaborate with God? Or are you going to let somebody else patent that invention and make the money of it? God wants to do things in your life that has never been done before. If you need wisdom, he says, ask and I will give you. The Bible also tells us that we have not because we ask not. Ask, seek God. Proverbs 2 and 4 says, seek her as silver, seek wisdom as silver, and search for her as hidden treasures. The book of Proverbs is also the wisdom book. The book of James is to the New Testament what the book of Proverbs is to the Old Testament. It is a book of wisdom, of instruction, of understanding. If you want to read the two in parallel, you will, you will emerge in 30 days. If you read one proverb a day, you'll be done in a month. You will emerge with such wisdom and such understanding. If you keep that up, then all of a sudden answers will come to you about questions that you have or solutions that your friends have, and you don't even know where that came from, but I can tell you where it came from. It comes from God's word. It comes from the implanted word, which we're going to see here in a minute. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith, with no doubting. Somebody say, no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Can you get the picture here? The imagery that James is, is, is painting is beautiful, isn't it? This is like poetry. But, but he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. We've all seen the waves driven and tossed by the wind. It's going this direction. The wave turns because the wind blows and it goes that direction. It's just all over the place until it finally crashes on the shore. Verse 7. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
So there is a right way to ask, and there's a wrong way to ask. There's a right outlook to have, and there's a wrong outlook to have. Verse 8 says, for he is a double-minded man. Let's get politically correct. Or woman. He is a double-minded man, or she is a double-minded woman, unstable in all of their ways. Do you, you know some unstable people? I mean, don't, don't name them here. Don't, don't look to your neighbor or nothing, but... You know some people who are just unstable. They're just, they're not settled. They're, they're shifty. They're always on the move. They're always on the go. You never, they're unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do. They're, they're kind of uh, dangerous in some ways. And this is the kind of person that we become when we're double-minded, when we mix our doubt on top of our faith. Now, the question occurs to me, is it possible to get rid of all doubts? Is it humanly possible to never, ever have a doubt? I mean, I am impressed many times by people who seem to just absolutely be so bold in their predictions, so bold in their faith that, that there seems to be no doubt whatsoever. Right now, if you turn on the news, you can see prognosticators that are completely and absolutely convinced that their candidate and their party is going to win. And if you watch it very long, they make some pretty compelling reasons why. And you can be drawn over to, yeah, I mean, look, look at all the facts and all the data that they're given. This is going to be the outcome. But every now and then I get a little doubt and I'll flip over to another station and I'll see, wait a minute, they are just as convinced on their side. Now, this kind of prognosticating is based upon not really faith. It's what the desire is. They want it to turn out that way, so they build up all their facts to it. But when it comes to prayer for, for things in our lives, when it comes to asking God for wisdom, is it possible to relieve and to, to be free of every doubt? Now, I would say probably not, but let me put a caveat in there. There is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the mention of the gift of faith. Now, this is different because uh, of all the spiritual gifts, faith is a gift, not the, but it is a gift of the Spirit. And I have watched people operate in the gift of faith. My wife has the gift of faith. When she gets something down in her knower and she knows because she knows and she prays for it, I get amazed because it happens. It, it, it works. Not, not, she doesn't always get that unction for everything, but there are specific things, family things, personal things. Uh, church-related things that she just knows. And I, I, I admire that because I don't have or I haven't, haven't d- discovered in myself that gift of faith because I'm kind of like a doubting Thomas myself. I'm a, I call myself a realist, but really I'm just kind of a pessimist sometimes. I try to be optimistic, but sometimes because of my logic, kind of like James, I, I want to work out all the scenarios first. But, but Holly operates m- much of the time in the gift of faith. And so I would say there are times and situations where you can just absolutely, without a doubt, know God has heard me, I have prayed, it's going to happen that way. However, for most of us, if we're not operating in that spiritual gift of faith, there is uh, what I would call honest doubts and cynical doubts. Let me just illustrate for you. Honest doubts are found when we come to God humbly in prayer, and you can see that a man came to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, and he said, Lord, I need a healing, and my family needs a touch. I believe, so I have faith, help my unbelief. So what he did is he brought to Jesus both his faith and those sneaking doubts. And most of us, if we're honest, we have faith, but we also kind of have a sneaking doubt. And these are honest 
doubts. This is just being real with God. And I think that it's very important that we just get real with God because he already knows what's in our heart anyway. And so that's an honest doubt. There is a a cynical doubt, and it it kind of operates in, uh, we can see it in Acts chapter 2 with the the Pentecostal um, uh, descent of the Spirit on the church. They had Pentecost, that there were people that were hearing foreigners talk in their own language and they said, these people must be drunk. There's something wrong with these people. They were cynical about it. This is also represented in our day when we come to the altar for prayer and we pray about something and we lay it down at the altar and we, we really seek God and we feel like we get a breakthrough. And just as soon as we get out to the parking lot because the answer hasn't come yet, we say, see, I knew God wasn't going to do it. You are a double-minded person if you lay it down at the altar on Sunday and you pick it up before you even get out in the parking lot. That's double-minded. You're being tossed to and fro by every wind. You get a bad call, you get a bad report, you get something negative, and you say, see, God never does it for me. No, that is being double-minded. We have to operate in faith, and we have to ask with faith believing. Look at verse 9. It says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers in the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty and appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away and his pursuits. The writer of of Proverbs says it like this, God, give me neither riches nor poverty. I I don't want to get so heady and high-minded with my riches and all of my acclaim and all of my success that I forget about you. And I don't want to be so poor that I have to beg and may end up stealing just to feed my body for bread. Give me something in the middle. And here's what James is illustrating for us here is that we need to, to not deal in extremes. We need to not be so uh, polarized on one end or another. But God, He is a God of balance, He is a God of order. God brings things perfectly together in order. Before creation, what do we see? That the world was, there was chaos. But God spoke and He created in divine order with timetables and schedules. And so what this is saying is that uh, there are people who take a lot of pride in their own wisdom and their own understanding and their worldly wisdom, and they've amassed great wealth and great fortunes. And that many times, not all the time, that many times causes us to be independent from God, to assert our own independence. And that's not what God wants at all. He doesn't want us to be independent upon him. He wants us to be tethered to him. He wants us to be able to make our choices, but always reliant upon him. Verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Okay, wait a minute. We've got a change in the text. He first was talking about trials and tests, and now he's talking about temptations. Don't raise your hand, but how many really in your mind you kind of lump trials, tests, and temptations all in one one bucket? I, I, I usually do, but they're not. And the the author here is going to make the distinction that trials and tests are separate from temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, here's some good theology. You ready? This is a a theology uh, course right here. Let no one say when he is tempted, not when he's tried or tested, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Hear me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself 
tempt anyone. Very important distinguishing difference. Trials and tests show up all on their own. They're like weeds in the garden. They show up. But temptation, now that has another derivative. That comes from a whole other source. Let's look at it. Verse 14. But each one, just look at your neighbor and say, I'm in each one. I'm in each one. But each one, I, I'm, I'm a person, this is talking to me, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, we think of conception, it's, it's, it's getting pregnant. When, when your desire has gotten pregnant inside of you, it gives birth. See the, see the uh, uh, childbearing analogy? It gives birth to sin. Somebody say sin's an ugly baby. <laughs> it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Not only is sin an ugly baby, sin is an ugly adolescent. Sin is an ugly preteen. Sin is an ugly young adult. Sin is an ugly adult. Sin's ugly. Sin. That three-letter word that we all have in common, but nobody wants to talk about. Don't talk about sin, preacher. You'll offend somebody. Don't talk about the blood. We don't need that anymore. Don't talk about these things that, that are, are, are going to step on people's toes. No, sin. It's like my childhood pastor used, used to tell us. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and sin will cost you more than you're willing to pay. It's sin. And he talks about how sin is conceived out of desire. So with this change of testing and trials, now we have temptation. Where does temptation come from? Well, it's not from God because God doesn't tempt us. He'll allow us to be tested. Yes, that's, that's important. He'll allow us to be tried. That's taking the examination to see whether or not we're approved and we go to the next grade. Thank God that there are, are, are tests to see if you graduate because if not, we'd all still be stuck in kindergarten, right? Thank God for that. He's, he's le letting us grow. He's letting us mature with trials and with testing. But God does not tempt us. Let's go back to the example of Jesus. This is a teaching series, by the way. I, I don't know where I'm going with a lot of this. I just, I'm just on the track, okay? So just follow me. So in Jesus' ministry, he gets the call to this wedding of Cana, he, he, he does his, his, his first miracle. But there's something that happens at the onset of Jesus' ministry. After he is baptized, after that he goes into the water by John the Baptist, he gets baptized, he hears the words from his father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He gets this affirmation, this pat on the back. If the heavens were to open up at your baptism and you hear God the Father say, well done, my good and faithful servant, you're probably thinking you're about ready to go to heaven, right? But... But Jesus received this great affirmation, and immediately following that, look what the word says. It says he was driven into the wilderness by the devil. Satan tempted him. He was allowed to, and Satan is allowed to tempt you. He, he, he tempted Jesus 40 days and 40 nights. Every, every kind of temptation, every kind of desire that could be offered to Jesus was offered during his earthly ministry. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He defeated the devil with the word. And he himself is 
the word. I know it's, it's hard. I, I can't get into all of it, but he is. He is the word. He is the living word of God. This is the logos of God. It's the written word. Jesus is the rhema. He is the living word of God. Okay, so where does temptation come from? I, I haven't forgot. I'm getting there, okay? So the devil tempts us. Satan tempts us. If we're not careful, we can get so fixated on blaming our problems on others that we take no personal responsibility for anything. And therefore, we become consummate victims all throughout our life. Well, if I'd had a better upbringing, well, if I'd had better parents, if I had better education, if I had better opportunities, and blame, blame, blame. But there comes a certain point where we can no longer say, well, the devil made me do it. How many of you ever heard someone blame it on the devil? Well, the devil made me do it. Because here's what James says, that each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Can I tell you that the majority of the temptations that you and Pastor Joe go through are based upon the desires that are already resident on the inside of me and you? Temptation comes because our desires... We can't just blame it. Yes, certainly some come from Satan, but it's our desires. And this word drawn away is a hunting tactic. When you draw away an animal, you're you're bringing it into an ambush so that you can shoot and you can kill that animal. Enticement is a fishing technique. These were fishermen. They would have really understood what James is talking about. Being enticed is like a lure. It is drawing you in to snag the bait. And how many knows that inside that bait, there is implanted a hook. And when you get hooked by these things that already are desires on the inside, this is why you have to guard your heart. You have to guard your affections. You need to set up some, some road uh, uh, guardrails in your life and in your marriage and in your relationship with, with others. You have to set up some areas of boundaries because what first starts as a thought First, we get a thought. It's a desire. It starts as a thought. It grows into an imagination. It's the thing we think about when we wake up. We're still thinking about it through the day, and we think about it when we go to bed at night. It's, it's this, this thought, this imagination, and then those imaginations turn into strongholds. If we're not careful, because of our own desires, we have walked into a temptation that has drawn us away and enticed us to give conception to sin. Heavy stuff, isn't it? But this is what James is talking about. Look at verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he clarifies and says, not only does God not tempt you, but God only offers good in your life. He set before us today a choice, blessing or cursing. He gives us the opportunity to choose. If God didn't give us the opportunity to choose out of his love, then we would be nothing more than mere robots. He gives us an opportunity to choose. He is a good, good father. That's who he is. And so we declare that all the good things come from him. Look at verse 19. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to wrath. Here, here are three points that you could be an entire message right here, but let me just, let me summarize it to say, slow, swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce. Somebody say, does not produce. Faith produces. Wrath does not produce. See the balance? See the dichotomy? See the choice? It does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. I told you we'd get to it. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Just because you have 15, 11 prayer journals and you've taken notes at every service since 1972 doesn't mean that you're a doer of the word. You've heard a lot of the word. But are you doing, are you activating your faith? Are you operating in faith upon what you have learned? When was the last time that you actually witnessed your faith to somebody? You want to know spiritual maturity? When was the last time that you apologized to someone? Spiritual maturity? When was the last time that you personally, before God, repented of something? It's quiet in here. Because this is the growth of our faith. He says here, that we should be slow to speak and quick to listen. Has it ever occurred to you that God has given us one mouth but two ears? So maybe just perhaps we should listen twice as much as we speak. And that we should also be slow to get angry. Why? Why would it be important for us to be slow to get angry, to let anger set up, to get mad, to lash out, to, to send that, that, that evil and mean text, to, to correct that wrong? Well, sometimes we just need to give it a little bit of time and let God work it out. But here's the other reason. Because wrath does not produce. I think as I look around here, every one of us would like to be productive, right? I don't think anybody wants to be unproductive. It's it's nice to, to look back at a day and see all you've produced. Yesterday, I was out in the yard all day long. I didn't anticipate it, but the sun was shining. It was nice outside. I got out in the yard. I cut down some grass, uh, uh, bushes. I, I, I trimmed a couple things. I took in some lawn furniture. I did all this stuff, and, and it, hours went by. I forgot really even what time it was till Holly said, hey, you got to come in and eat. It's, it's past lunchtime, and, and I felt so good about all the, the accomplishment, all the things that I had accomplished for the day. I looked back and said, boy, that was a productive day. And I look around here. I think everybody wants to have a productive life. We want to have things that produce. Well, wrath does not produce, but faith produces. And if you want to be a productive person, you need to operate in faith. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, now this is where it gets real for church folk. This gets right on our level. If anyone among you thinks that he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is Pastor Lewis in Nigeria, whom we we love and support. This is his title verse for his entire ministry. 
Let me read it again. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. But that first part really just gets me. It says, if anyone thinks that they're religious but does not bridle, put a harness on, bring control to and tame their tongue, their religion is useless. When you were born, God gave you 32 ivory bars to tame that animal in your mouth. And he's going to talk about it in the next chapter too. He talks about the tongue continuously as we go through this, that it's like the rudder of a ship. It directs your life anywhere you go. And sometimes, even in church, it'd be nice just to say, shut your mouth. (laughs) Just shut your mouth. Just use those ivory bars that God gave you at birth. Now, some of you say, well, I don't have as many teeth as I used to. Well, you need to get some false ones or something because you need to shut your mouth sometimes because our tongue can cause so much adversity, so much trouble, what we say. And if we bridle that, then we have true religion undefiled and we're unspotted from the world. But we look at those who are least among us. Here's what's interesting to me. There's not one person in here. There's not one person in this country who would go to a platform and publicly say, yeah, I see orphans and widows. They're in my neighborhood and I don't care if they eat or not. No, we care about those things. Those are important to us. And yet we have entire political parties that have just spent billions and billions of dollars on both sides. This is a nonpartisan thing because they're spending it on both sides all to get elected for an office or for a job that pays tens of thousands. Now, now, is, is something wrong when you, you vie for a job spending billions of dollars that only pays tens or hundreds of thousands? Yeah, something's wrong with that. But that's the world we live in. What if they just took those billions and gave them to the poor and widows? I mean, both parties say that they're for the the common man, that they're for the little guy, right? That's what they say. But here's what we have to remember. Please hear me. We are not electing to Congress a choir. We are not electing to the Senate Sunday school teachers. We are not electing to the office of the president a pastor mentality or, or, or role. We are electing flawed people. They're flawed on both sides, by the way, to do the best that they say they can do for the direction of our country. So the the question for you and I today as believers, are we going to be just hearers of the word or are we going to be doers also? Because just being a hearer of the word would be like saying, well, it doesn't matter if I vote. My vote's only one. God's on the throne. He's going to take care of it anyway. That would be the same as seeing an orphan or a widow in your neighborhood and saying, oh, God bless them. God's on the throne. He'll make sure they're taken care of. No, stop your car, get out of the car, give them something, go take them to a place and get them something warm to eat. Go and be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. We're going to sing this song. Before we do, I want to give you an opportunity to pray. If you have never said yes to this Jesus I've been talking about, today is your day. Today's your opportunity to say yes to him. And it's with a simple prayer. It's like this. God, I'm a sinner. I repent. Save me. I accept Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. And if you prayed anything that resembles that, 
We believe that you have taken a step towards God. You have inclined yourself to God. And now it's important as a doer of the word that you let somebody know that you prayed that, that you took that step because we want to get you into a growth class. We want to get you connected to a small group. We want to show you how that you can take that next step of faith to be baptized and to join with the family of God. Thank you for joining us today. I just can't wait for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Thank you for sharing on social media, and please subscribe. And if this message has impacted you in any way, would you just write a rating or review for us so we can reach even more people with this message? Your generosity really does make a difference. So to give, please go to newfc.org and click on the giving tab, or click on the link in the video description. We love you. We'll see you real soon.